Welcome to the FemiPod. These are conversations about females for everyone to listen to, learn from and engage with. Brought to you by your Femi founders, Esther Kewen and myself, Lydia Fidel. Welcome back to the FemiPod. This is episode number 50, which is crazy, Um, but thank you so much for joining us. I am here with, of course, my bestie and co-founder, Esty. Oh, hey. So excited that we're on episode number five zero. I cannot believe it. I can't believe we've done 50. Insane. Yeah, it's insane. We um, had an awesome week. We went to the IWG Women in Sport Conference and we met some like incredible people and heard some really cool talks that just you know, validated that woman's sport is on this massive uprise and there's so many allies and people behind it and it just like fired us up even more. So been a very cool week. What did you take out of it, Liz? It was so cool. I really loved the fact that it was a global conference. We had people from all over the world here and to learn from what worked in their marketplaces and what worked with their female athletes and their female leaders and coaches, like it's been awesome. I think they'd diversity within the group was incredible and I think it's definitely made us aware of how much better we need to be in this space but I think I just learned so much from others which was awesome but really inspired to continue to make change what about you yeah same so inspired I think both Lids and I in front of a crowd of 1600 people stood up and you know called some stuff out which I think took a lot of bravery from us both which was really cool and it sparked a lot of conversations so Basically, they were saying, you know, what are you excited about? Uh, Liz basically got up and started, you know, saying her what lights her up is menstruation and periods. Is that what you said? I said menstruation and periods and feeling empowered in my body. Love that. And then I got up because we they were talking about, you know, what are the challenges we're facing in getting people to listen and basically just called out the organizations that we've been trying to get Femi Theory into who are so excited and really seem like they really want to be involved and get this education out there and then go radio silent. But then within all these strategic reports, it's all about, you know, educating coaches and trainers and medical staff and people that work with female athletes, because those are the people that kind of create the environments. I know the athletes have power in themselves to also create the environments, but it kind of comes from the top. So how can we get this education out there? And we were just being ignored. And we literally said this in front of a room full of these organizations who we've been talking to. So we didn't hold back. It was pretty fun. And then lots of people reached out to us after. So I think it was really fun and just cool. I mean, the people there are the converted. They want to make the space better, but sometimes it is hard. I know people are really busy and have a lot on their plate, but this should be one of their highest priorities. Um, to make the space better for women in sport. Absolutely. But in saying that, there were some incredible speakers, so many people making change in their own ways for females and improving the arena for women in sport. So it was so inspiring to hear from so many speakers. They had 200 speakers over the four days um, talking about a range of things all the way from female physiology and menstrual cycles and female hormones through to how you can find resource and investment and improve the space from a monetary perspective for females, which was awesome. So we attended plenty of those sessions and we spoke to some amazing, amazing people and we wanted to share some of those conversations with you today. So we have three incredible interviews with 
three very different people, um, but all trying to change the space for women in sports. So we want to introduce these incredible three people to you, um, and then we're going to throw it over to them to chat to you a little bit about what they do. First up, we have Gabriela Muller Mendoza. She is an energetic and engaging professional speaker and coach. Her mission is to increase diversity in leadership in sports organizations for better results. Originally from Mexico City, she now lives in Switzerland. Her work has created impact in over 80 countries for the past 20 years. Founder and creator of Women Lead Sports Master Program, womanleadsports.com, empowering over 5,000 graduates since 2007. Graduates get elected and run successful election campaigns to earn high decision-making positions as leaders in sports organizations, which we know is so needed. She has coached a great majority of the leaders in international federations, international Olympic committees, and Fortune 500 companies. Welcome, Gabriella. Uh, Gabriella, can you tell us how is tech changing women's sports industry globally? Yeah, well, it's massively changing. I would say there are three big pillars that are definitely changing. One is fan engagement. The other one is the, how technologies are impacting the market and therefore the way we do sports. And finally is the generational shift that is happening and it's coming. All of it is a tsunami, it's coming. So our fans want more interactive content in video, real time, raw content, right? Younger generations, Gen Zers, who are really now the new buyers and the new fans, um, want more of this. So sports need to adapt. Mm -hmm. Therefore, organizations need to adapt. The next thing is also the generational shift. 2025 is going to be the year where they're going to have more Gen Zers and millennials running the show, just like you <laughs> and the listeners of your podcast. And so three out of four. And I always say to the rest of the world, fasten your seatbelt because a different leadership is here. Absolutely. And definitely the mindset. We are definitely now that is an upgrade of mindset and skill set to be future ready. So whoever is really doing it right now is going to be ready in three years where it's not going to be an option. We need to change before we have to. Mm -hmm. And a lot of sporting organizations aren't really changing. So they're probably going to be in trouble. <laughs> yes, exactly. And we mm. see that already. Some of them are falling behind and some of them are making yeah. significant strides, right? And usually it's the usual suspects, the ones with a lot of money, are putting already money in, for example, new technologies like the metaverse, which I mentioned before in the talk, and also esports. Mm. If anybody listening to this, you need to start already getting your act together, getting curious in new platforms, new formats, new ways, because everything is already happening there. And the only question is, are you being part of the conversation or are you going to only become a consumer three years later? And that's what worries me because, you know, men are voting the metaverse as we speak. There's not a lot of women in tech and not a lot of women involved in the metaverse. And so women are going to fall into another world that has been built by men for men. And totally. that's concerning. Absolutely. Who's the engineer? Who are the engineers designing the metaverse for us, right? And again, this is an alternative 3D, tridimensional universe. It doesn't mean that it's going to replace what we're doing now. It's going to augment what we're doing. And so if it's not being built by us, if it's not, we're not gaining the digital skills and we're only going to get late to that place, it's going to become like some other trends that we have seen. So here is my call to action to anybody listening to your podcast. Get curious, get some digital skills that is going to be a must, right? Mm -hmm. Simple things like front-end coding should not be any more of foreign concept to some of us, right? And the next thing is 
for women here, start investing. The yeah. investment on something really, even just the five bucks daily somewhere that is going to be significant for you. Mm-hmm. And if you want to invest in women, good because that's what the business is mm-hmm. amazing and where do you see the world in 10 years for women's sport well two versions right if we got our act together and if we didn't okay if we let's say that if we didn't we're gonna miss out on a lot of opportunities visibility and business uh, so we don't want it. the next one is i hope that people like you your listeners the new generation understands that you're gonna be driving you're behind the wheel. In three years, it's going to be really on you. And your values, when you are at the core of it, sustainability, um, and really be central in the athletes, climate change, that is a core priority, and integrity in leadership. If those are the pillars, I think we're going to be okay, right? And it's going to be massive. It's going to be a new metaverse experience. That means in 10 years, you and I, instead of buying a physical ticket to go to Qatar, you know, to the World Cup, you are going to be probably sitting in your yoga pants, experiencing with your VR and AR and technology, augmented and virtual reality, and experiencing what it is to be there, right? With mm-hmm. everything that in twice, right? Imagine the stadium selling the same seat digitally several times for thousands, limitless times, right? And you experience enlightenment. So the only question is, are we getting women, especially girls, now involved in a meaningful way in this new reality? Mm-hmm. Definitely, it's so wild to think about, but really exciting and something exciting for our girls, the next generation to be involved in, to ho- hopefully have that passion and desire to be part of. Yeah. At Femi, we talk a lot about other things a lot of things that you talk about, how women are leading the way for this new world of women's sports. But for a lot of people, especially male leaders who are in charge of money, aren't really willing to listen. And that's definitely something we've experienced through this journey with our startup. Mm -hmm. How can we as female founders get more support to change the world for women's sports? Okay, so I would say two things. You're in a very um, interesting and challenging space. We know that worldwide, from the venture capital money that flows in the world, billions and billions of dollars, only about 2.5% goes to startups that are led by women, right? So you experience that, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so here are a couple of things. You need to find, this is how I, I help people create change, especially founders who look for venture capital and resources. You need to find your early adopters, the 16 point something percent of the entire law of diffusion, right? Which is your early adopters and your first critical mass, right? Do not spend time, and I mean it, do not spend time trying to convince people whose first question is, really, is it really a business? I mean, come on, you are really misusing your energy. You're not going to get that guy until that guy sees other guys who he or she trusts who have been early adopters. You're looking for people with passion. If you're looking in your women's space, you're looking for men who have one or two characteristics, which is really interesting. One is they have a partner, a wife, somebody at home who's economically active. She has a job. Right. And the second thing is that they have daughters in teenage time Mm -hmm. where in these two moments, men are more likely to be aware of the challenges of women and therefore to give you more support. And of course, daughters. Mm -hmm. Right. So you're looking for very specific demographics of supporters. 
And once you get those people, they become your ambassadors. Don't always look for the first investment. Sometimes it's an endorsement. Mm-hmm. So maybe you don't look for maybe the first dollars, but you look for the first person who comes to the event, does picture for you and endorses you on social media for free, right? Mm-hmm. So your first deals are going to be different. But then once you start building your brand, right? You said your worth, not the market. Mm-hmm. You said it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting because we're finding we're getting more interest from angel investors who are really passionate about the purpose, but VCs are, I think, still scared of taking a risk with us but I feel like they're missing out and how do we convince them you know so you have to understand women are statistically much more risk averse, right Mm -hmm. so within the space of women you need to find your angels you need to have the people the the passionate and by the way do not only focus on women one of the stories that much more convinces of this weekend or this week has been the Angel City team, right? Mm -hmm. And how they were able to get also male allies with money right there, even before they sold one ticket, right? Mm -hmm. So you're looking for to sell the passion, to sell the dream first, right? Start small, but then always keep an ambitious vision, Mm -hmm. right? And look in places that is not always the sports world. Right, so amplify your views. So, how about tech companies or pharma companies? How about other people? And and one thing, remember, you are selling to women, and we feel we feed these industries. We are the ones who buy the running shoes, the the supplements, the vitamins, the hormone supplements, of things. We are feeding them, and a lot of these companies are not being approached for these pitches because we go usually for the big, usual big suspects, right? We need to go to the places where we put the money in, mm-hmm. right? From makeup companies to running shoes to supplements. These are the people who they understand that the buyers are the ones who are also the reasons why they exist. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Oh, thank you so All much. Right. Thank you. Through. Right now we are joined by the incredible Jayanthi Kuri Utupala, the first ever person from Sri Lanka to climb Mount Everest in May of 2016. Jayanthi is not only an incredibly strong climber, but is also an advocate for the rights of LGBTQI plus community and women's rights alongside studying and researching gender studies and women's rights. Welcome Jayanthi. Thank you so much for being with us today. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you very much for having me. Why are you so passionate about women's rights? Well, first of all, because I am a woman and um, as a woman, I have on multiple occasions experienced discrimination, inequality, sexism, misogyny throughout my life. And I think many women also go through this. (laughs) There are very rare cases where people don't. Um, And because of that, it's something that affects me and I believe that these um, all these factors that discriminate us are rooted in patriarchy and we need to dismantle patriarchy and unpack it and break down the stereotypes. So women's rights essentially is important to me because uh, we all deserve to be treated with equality, with respect and dignity, regardless of our gender, our sexual orientation, uh, where we come from, what religious belief we have, any, any, any factor. So that's why I'm passionate about it. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. And I think the the world just needs 
you know, rights for everybody so that we can all live in a much healthier and balanced place for everyone, right? It's not just about improving the world for women. Absolutely. And we actually sat in your talk yesterday and loved it. And you spoke about um, how when we talk about women's rights, we can't just talk about women's rights without talking about the LGBTQI plus community rights as well. Mm -hmm. Why is this and what can we as feminists do to ensure all rights are being served? Well, absolutely. I mean, because... As women, we are not homogeneous, right? As women becoming, and all people, in fact, not only women, I'm talking also about women, non-binary people, but also trans people, uh, trans women. Um, all of us have intersecting identities. And uh, sometimes we are privileged because of the identity we have. Um, in my country, I'm a middle-class woman, and um, I come from an anglicized background, and that's a privilege that I have, which gives me access to many other opportunities that a woman from a different part of the country may not have that access simply because of where she was, which um, town or village she comes from. Mm -hmm. And then somebody else might have more access. So, so if you are also someone who is um, either a lesbian, bisexual woman or bisexual or trans or belonging to the LGBTIQ community, there are an additional layer of rights denied to you. And particularly in a context in Sri Lanka where we have laws. We've got old colonial British laws mm. that continue to criminalize LGBTIQ people. And this is a problem. So again, when we come back to talking about equality, we all, every human being is deserves to be treated with equality mm. and dignity and respect. Mm. And we need to break down these barriers that prevent us from getting there. Mm -hmm. It's so true. And I think we've all probably experienced some form of discrimination and we know how it feels mm -hmm. and therefore we want everyone to not experience that. And that includes every single person on this earth. So yeah, I love your whole philosophy and everything you believe in. Um, as we mentioned, you were the first, well, in the intro, we haven't done that yet, but we will. <laughs> as we mentioned, you were the first Sri Lankan person to ever climb the world's highest mountain, Mount Everest. Not the first woman, but the first person. How was this a crazy experience? <laughs> it was, uh, yeah, absolutely crazy experience. Um, but for, I, I'm uh, again, I'm very privileged that I had the opportunity to do this. Uh, I'm privileged in many ways. From a young age, I had family that actually supported my crazy <laughs> dreams <laughs> to climb trees, like in my garden. When I know many girls in Sri Lanka again and many parts of the world might be told, do not climb trees. Or do not do that. Do not do this. You're going to fall and break your neck. <laughs> and girls specifically, particularly after puberty, there are even more strict rules about what you can do and cannot do. Um, so Everest itself, yes. I mean, I can talk for days about Everest. But I'm most grateful that by climbing Mount Everest, I have been able to combine the two things I love most. Um, my work on gender equality and my belief in women's rights as a feminist. Um, and by becoming the first person from Sri Lanka to summit this mountain, um, I have now been given a public platform to be able to share this story and also talk about how important it is for us to challenge gender stereotypes because that uh, that affects all of us. And uh, so the journey itself, I mean, yes, it, it, I had many fears. I was very, very scared all the way up and all the way down for 60 days because it is a 60-day climb. Um, but it was something I had to do. It was a childhood dream and something I just had to do. And I'm very grateful that Somaluma or Sangamata, these are the local names for Everest, 
uh, gave me the opportunity to climb up safely and come back safely in one piece. Wow. And the team that you climbed with, was that predominantly men? The team I climbed with, so there were, I, my climbing partner himself is a man and uh, a very good friend of mine as well. And we do we did meet other climbers from different parts of the world. And we were in a team actually with, um, let me see, there were six of us uh, and there were three women and three men. Amazing. So uh, cool. equal team. Unfortunately, though, not everyone made it. Wow. There was one other person from the US uh, who was with us who made it in the summit and back. And this is why I feel really grateful that on my first attempt, I was able to do this. Of course, everything has to fall into place. And I'm grateful to the mountain that I could do that. But it, it doesn't matter how many attempts it takes. I think what matters is that like my climbing partner did turn back when his wife was engaged. And that takes a lot of courage. Mm -hmm. And that's important as well. Yeah. Yes. Wow. I, I feel like the universe wanted you to get to the top because of what you're passionate about and what you're trying to do for the world. I do, I, we both quite believe in things happening for a reason and obviously what you believe in needs to change and we, we're so passionate about it as well and that's probably why you made it because yeah, then you've got this big platform now and you're yeah. doing so much with it and helping so many people. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think about that a lot because um, in Nepal they do say the mountain chooses you and you cannot choose a mountain and I felt guilty at first that, you know, why, I think, you know, because I could make it but why couldn't my friends make it? And um, I guess maybe this is why I, I, I feel maybe this is why that because we can challenge stereotypes and it's important to share that message with everyone. Yeah, yeah. incredible. And that decision making to go ahead and attempt to climb the beast was part of that because you wanted to build this platform to create a stronger voice to push, you know, the values and beliefs that you have or was that something that just came with this oh, experience? It, it just came. I mean, it was a personal journey. There was no intention. I didn't even know I'll come back. So I had no idea what I was getting into. There mm -hmm. was just, you know, that fire within you of wanting to, you must be all having something, right, that you absolutely want to do. Uh, and we have a very short, all of us have short lives, right? <laughs> Time can fly. So it, it just happened the way it did. I didn't intend on becoming the first Sri Lanka person. Um, I didn't even know I'll come back. Um, but I had to climb the mountain and then what happened afterwards has been a roller coaster, but it's been an entirely different journey subsequently um, where I have had to also embrace the public space and I'm not really a hugely public person. <laughs> well, you're incredible at speaking <laughs> well, and <yeah>. very inspiring. <laughs> Thank you. I do that also because I know the number of young people who come up to me, young and young at heart, who have come up to me and said that um, story is inspiring and it has helped them also overcome their own fears and take on something that they thought they could never do. Mm. And for me, that has even more strength to just continue sharing it. Wow. And I'll keep doing it for as long as I can. Mm -hmm. Definitely keep doing it. You've thank really you. inspired us and um, we're so grateful for your time. Thank you. Thank yeah, you. Thank, thank you. you very much. Kia ora. Kia ora. Kia ora. <laughs> and lastly today, we have Tim Corbett. He is the CEO of the Sir John Kerwin Foundation and on the board of the Women in Sport Aotearoa. Tim has a diverse background in the commercial, health, and social impact sectors. With over 25 years experience in creating change at a national and community level, Tim is driven to bring together the strength of Fano and community-led change with the skills and resources of the commercial sector to create transformational change and intergenerational impact. Welcome, Tim. So good to have you here, Tim. Uh, could you just tell us what is your experience as a parent with both male and female athletes? So we've got 
uh, five kids, four, four boys, one girl. So all of them have been highly involved in sport. My wife's a big sport person as well. So it's been a big part of our sort of family culture, being involved in sport. So they've been involved in multiple different sports from probably five, six years old, right now through to elite level at uh, 24, 23. So they've gone right the way through. Um, uh, all the, the from a from a parent perspective, it was a it was right. It was a big part of our family culture, a big part of our family cost. Um, mm -hmm. But one of the things we saw in particular was that how um, uh, early on, uh, other parents got really really intense very very quickly, and even at like 10, 11 years old, they were trying to get their child to specialise and, uh, and and become the best in that particular sport. And we know, you know physically, if, if kids are born earlier in that year, they'll develop quicker. So if it's under 13s, then the child who's born at the beginning of the year is going to have a six to eight month advantage of physical growth, mature maturity. So they're going to get into the teens. And so these parents started to, they would shop clubs, they would shift around clubs to try and find the right coach, to try and get in front of selectors. Um, they, it's, the parent tribe became very, very intense wrapped around them. So, um, and no real difference between male and female in that. It was just an intense on the, on the, on the girl's side, it's the male side. And the, a lot of parents on the sideline becoming almost close to fanatical in there. And then often fueled by the schools themselves, because for schools, sport is a massive brand vehicle. And when they put that intensity on it, it's very, very short term. So it's right at year 13, and then we don't care. So, um, yeah, it's been it's, a, it's a, such a great vehicle, but it's like any tool, you know, a hammer can be used to break a window or can be used to make a house. So sport can break or make families and kids and people. Yeah, I love that analogy. That's that's cool. And why do you think some parents really struggle with the idea that speciali specialization early in sport isn't that benef yeah. beneficial for athletes long-term? Sure, yeah. Probably one of the things I have noticed is that the parent who gets hyper-fanatical in their life was a B-grade athlete. And so they're living vicariously through their, their kids. Um, the A-grade athlete really is quite relaxed. You know, that you, you, and you'll read it quite a bit and you'll see stories of ex-New Zealand reps going, oh, no, I didn't push my kids into cycling. I just wanted them to discover it. I heard Sarah Oliver talking about that on an interview just a couple of weeks ago. Um, cricketers go, oh, yeah, if they find it, great. You know, I'll help them out, but I don't want to push them into it type thing. I want them to find it for themselves. But that sort of almost made it apparent is living vicariously through their kids. Part of it too, and in my own spot, was going, oh, I want them to have every opportunity to try every sport they can. And you know, and I'm a tech head, so I love buying gear and love buying equipment. So I was vicariously shopping through my children. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that was really useful. So I got really, you know, sport tech is fantastic. So I became an expert in hockey goalkeeper gear, even though I never played goalkeeper. <laughs> so, um, and made relationships with them down that way. But they... Um, I think they why they don't believe in multi-sport and all the research shows that if you play multiple different sports you will get you'll be a better athlete in the sport that you finally land in they literally don't believe it i think they go yeah that was 15 years ago um but it's different now and also i think part of it too is that they're only limited how much resource they've got available time and money so when when we're saying go and play different sports and it's 350 bucks for hockey fees, it's 250 for tennis fees, it's 150 for basketball, it's going to cost a thousand bucks to be able to grow a multi-sport child. That's just the fees. And then everything popped on top. So I look at it the other way around and go, sports codes need to integrate multi-sport development into their sport code. 
So, so bring that multi, multi, multimodal movement pattern development into their sport. Yeah, that's so interesting. Probably something I've never thought about. But like sport is a privilege. And, yes. You know, we're sure. only realizing that at our age now yeah, how lucky yeah. we were to have yeah. it when we were younger. Yeah. And parents who drove that drove you mm-hmm. and got you there. And, 100%. Yeah. And sport is also a microcosm of society. We believe change in sport will spark change in other industries. Mm. How do you see female empowerment in sport changing the world? Yeah, what, what, I, what I like about it is that um, what we've seen, particularly in these last few years, and I mentioned this morning, that we're, we're, in a, we're in a watershed moment of, these, of world history for women's sport, from me to right now through the Blackfoots. So we're in an in a, in a opportunity to be highly innovative because the media coverage is so good. But also you can own your own media channel. So you don't actually have to rely on Sky Sport to show it. You can actually just drive your own channel. And it's more authentic then, and it's a niche community who, who are highly engaged with you. So if you've got you know, uh, 20,000 YouTube fans, they are highly, highly engaged. They are more engaged than 20,000 TV watchers because they're, they're on multi-screens. They're on their iPad, they're on their phone, they're watching TV. They're not highly connected with you. And they love your story and they follow you. Look at you know, Casey Neistat. Love him. <laughs> He's back. Yes, he's, he's back. He's back. I was just thinking of a troll podcast with him. So good. And he's never been on TV. He's a filmmaker who used YouTube as his platform and got millions and millions and changed the world through that. So what the bonus is that uh, one woman and girls can own the channel so they can show the persona and the strength that they want to show, not that's been conditioned through a male lens or conditioned through a, a brand lens. Uh, but then on the other side, there's quite a few uh, brand managers and sponsorship managers who are realizing this is a massive marketing and revenue opportunity and, and are now pushing women forward. I read of one, one company who um, was a few years back when women's, sport wasn't, women's football wasn't still getting in. So they used their sponsorship dollar, I think possibly with, with UK football, and said, we want that to go to uh, broadcasting the women's game not the men's game. And so they use their sponsorship power and dollar power to change the game. Mm-hmm. So we, we need more of that. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So so women can now show strength in action, power in action, and that sort of thing, and not, not be compared to men. Mm-hmm. And women and fans of women's sport are attached to values. And if a, oh, yeah. if a brand does something like that, yes. puts women on that stage, like, right. people are just going to love that brand. Oh, yeah. So when, smart. When men go to see a game, they go with themselves or they go with mm. a beer and a hot dog. When women go to a game, they take six away. They spend on the way there, they spend there, they spend on the way back, they spend afterwards. So they're a, they're a fantastic marketing option. Mm, we do love spending money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's part of the experience. You, you buy experience, you buy shared experience. Men don't buy shared experience. Mm, that's so true. Through your work, what can we as female athletes and founders who want to make change for the next generation, or the next gen of femmes, continue to drive change and encourage girls to stay in sport through a bit business lens? Yeah. Uh, I think what you guys are doing, in particular with Femi, is, is providing a whole different platform and a different brand channel. And, a, and it's a different product. It's a whole, it's what is there. It's always been there. It's, uh, ever since Eve said, hey, try this apple. It's menstrual cycles have been around, but it's the way that you've turned it into a solution that can be purchased and easily. So I think that's that's really critical, making it easy to buy. It's really attractive. It's got a great brand appeal. I follow it, and I hired menopause, not menopause. <laughs> and, and I've used the material to pass it on to others, and, and it's adjusted my lens when I'm looking at women and girls' sport, going, oh, it should be structured like this to maximize performance and potential. So I think seeing the um, 
the bonus with things like Instagram and TikTok and that sort of thing is that young women are really, really brand savvy and business savvy without realizing it. Like Lazy Sneakers is one. She's built a social business from 12 um, because there's these tools available. Imagine trying to do that 10 years ago without, you would have had Squarespace maybe, but now you don't even need a website. You don't even need to use VR. You don't even, you can be your own brand. So I think young women have, uh, are immersed in business tools without even realizing it and brand appeal and consumer behavior. They are, they're experts in consumer behavior. And you can be a niche. You can be a left-handed basketball over six foot brand platform and you'll get 60,000 people around the world who go, yeah, I resonate with that. Love it. So cool. Amazing. Thank you. Thank you so yeah, much. Cool. Pleasure. Really cool. Cool questions. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the FemiPod, episode number 50. We will be back in your ears next week. But in the meantime, if you want to get in touch with us, you can hit us up on Instagram at femi.co or head to our website, femi.co. But thanks for tuning in and we'll chat to you all next week. Hey.